I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Are you the CEO of Adzix Chemicals? Yeah. Who the hell are you? Your conscience. You know, I keep hearing they're going after doctors next. They are. They'll throw a few to the wolves. Optics matter. More than 70,000 overdose deaths each year in this country. Most people still envision big boats smuggling in the dope. Low-level dealers selling it on the street. Yeah, that still goes on. But the real culprits, the pharmaceutical companies, the doctors, they grease. You come into my office to tell me what to do and how to live? I just give advice. You take your advice. Get the hell out of here. It not the answer I was looking for. More Americans have died of opioid abuse than were killed in the Vietnam War. And as long as it makes money, nobody gives a damn. That's not a conspiracy. You tell me what it is. Fear-mongering. Fake news being pushed by a liar like you. You got a lot of nerve showing up here. I'm surprised you even knew about this side of town. You kidding me? I grew up on this side of town. So what are we going to do about the legalized pushers? Hmm? Appeal to their better nature? They got no better nature. This is going to happen! Are you serious? I think you'll find I'm a pretty serious guy. I think I'm getting under your partner's skin. Parallaxies listeners, what you just heard was the audio from the trailer for the new vigilante thriller from cult director Mark Savage, Painkiller, starring Bill Oberst Jr., a really great character actor who has been on the show before, and Michael Pear, a rather prolific actor known for such films as Streets of Fire, The Philadelphia Experiment, and Eddie and the Cruisers. The director, Mark Savage, and the lead star, returning guest, Bill Oberst Jr., are going to be joining us on this edition of the program to chat about how vigilantism, big pharma corruption, and the opioid epidemic collide in their new indie thriller, Painkiller. But before we get to that, I'd like to promote one of the sponsors for this program, Apropos, given the heavy subject matter we'll be covering, if you're dealing with issues like grief or trauma, like the characters in the movie we'll be discussing, then consider reaching out to 
Alexander Yu for holistic therapy that's welcoming and embracing of people from all walks of life and spiritual paths. If you're interested and live in the state of California, please feel free to call or text Alexander Yu at 323-834-9828 or you can reach out by email at therapy at alexanderyoo.com California license number 102886 And with all that being said, let's get to our discussion with Mark Savage and Bill Oberst Jr. Now we're not going to just be discussing the movie with Mark and Bill, but also some topics that are tangential to all of it, including, of course, the opioid epidemic and its effect on America, the power imbalances between the rich and the poor, the catharsis of vigilante films, and a rather fascinating discussion, in my view, of certain movies as exploitation films, and the legendary producer Roger Corman's contention that all films, even the big Academy Award winners and major blockbusters, are themselves exploitative in some way or another. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views with our guests, director Mark Savage and actor Bill Oberst Jr. of the new vigilante thriller, Painkiller. Hey, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome back to Parallax Views, uh, a guest we had on last Halloween the man behind the monsters, uh, Bill Oberst Jr., a really great and underrated actor. And joining him this time is a first-time guest, the cult filmmaker Mark Savage, who has a number of credits to his belt, including uh, Sensitive New Age Killer, a very interesting film that reminds me a lot of Pulp Fiction. That's one of the earlier ones he did, as well as Stressed to Kill and its follow-up, Painkiller. Now, Stressed Kill and Painkiller both feature Bill, and I really enjoyed both of them. Painkiller is a brand new movie, and I just want to say that I enjoyed it. So if you could, Mark, uh, do you want to tell my listeners just a little bit about the plot of Painkiller? But also, I'm curious, where's the origin point for the idea behind doing this movie? Well, thanks for the intro. Um, yeah, the origin point behind the movie is that the 
co-writer of the movie with me, Tom, uh, lost his 21-year-old son um, to um, opioids. And that had happened about it happened about three years ago. And at the time, we were in between movies. We'd just done another film called um, Purgatory Road at the time, and we were kind of planning, you know, you know what are we going to do next? What do we want to do? And his son, yeah, his son lost his life. And this is in the middle of a pretty serious, you know, um, scourge of deaths from opioids. Like even in the last year, it's been like 100,000 people have died in the last year of um, opioids. So this is what kind of like launched us um, in creating a character who has lost his child. And um, rather than exact revenge, um, you know, in the usual way in a vigilante movie where it's people on the street, well, he decides that he's going to target the people who are really responsible for the promotion and marketing of opioids, which are the um, the uh, pharmaceutical companies and also the doctors who also push it. So that was the main that was a main motivating factor. It was very painful for Tom too because he had um, he'd lost his son. So eventually, though, he felt it was quite therapeutic to to make the movie. And of course, Bill, um, who's with us, um, Bill seemed like the ideal person and we could thread it into a series we'd already started, which was um, In Stress to Kill, which was about someone, you know, trying to lower their heart rate by um, getting rid of the stresses from their life. So this was another kind of stress. So um, it made sense in that we would like continue the story without it making like a direct sequel to Stress to Kill. So then, Bill, how did you end up coming to this movie and how is it different for you than say how you approached stressed to kill because i feel like you put a lot into this character it's a very difficult emotional character that has gone through a lot of grief and loss i did the movie because mark savage asked me to now for people who don't know mark or his work you see him talking and he seems absolutely benign harmless even just this sort of jolly fellow. Mark Savage is a dark, dark artist. And I mean that as the highest compliment. He reaches inside, pulls out the darkness, and makes us examine it. Uh, and that's why I love him as a friend, as a brother in creativity. And anything he asked me to do, if I can possibly do it, I'm going to do it. And so he asked me to do this movie. And of course, I was going to do it. I was quite worried about the character because I knew the personal connection that uh, his co-writer and the uh, executive producer, my co-star, Tom Pernell, had. And I kept going back to Mark uh, with ideas um, and asking questions. And he helped me by telling me that most of my ideas were wrong. And I mean, I don't mean that as a dig. I mean it sincerely. My um, JG, my, there may be actors whose initial instincts are always right. Mine are not. I need the uh, relationship with the director is absolutely crucial for me. If, if I, I'm very into interpersonal relationships. If I can get in sync with somebody, I can start to intuit and it works. But if I'm just left to my own devices and told to do something, generally it will not be the right thing. And Mark lets you do that with him. He opens up, he lets you come in. He'll tell you if it's not fitting in with his vision. And that's what makes for a, um, a beautiful, creative working relationship, in my opinion. So then, Mark, how do you work with Bill in sort of bringing out this very troubled and, you know, dark, but also in a lot of ways, I would say very sympathetic character? Yeah, you know, I dealt with that issue with Stress to Kill because 
when you're making a film about a character who is doing something that's a crime, you know, killing people, if you want the character to be, you know, sympathetic, and I simply mean like obviously a character that the audience is going to root for, you know, it's going to be on their side, because essentially your lead character doesn't necessarily have to be likeable across the board, but the character has to be someone that the audience is going to root for. You know, so, real quick, um, not 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 to interrupt you, and uh, sure. hopefully this doesn't come off as a spoiler. Uh, so, uh, if it does come off as a spoiler to anyone, uh, skip ten seconds ahead. But for me, stress to kill is a bit different in a lot of ways than painkiller. In so much as, yeah, you can feel sympathy for Bill, but the punchline of the joke in Stress to Kill is that the detective character played by Armand Asante, who's investigating these vigilante crimes, and the lead character, played by Bill Oberst, are actually kind of two sides of the same coin, because the detective character himself sort of may actually agree with this vigilantism and sort of wants to do it himself. And when Bill sort of sees that, he's like, wow, this guy is nuts, and yet Bill is uh, a vigilante killer himself. And to me, that's the sort of satirical punchline of that movie. In a way, it's sort of uh, self-critical of vigilantism at the, while also being, you know, sympathetic towards Bill. Does that sort of make sense? I, I feel like there's a bit of a, yeah. a joke like in started, there about the Asante character. Go on. Yeah, sure. You yeah, know, I, 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 the reason I first meant, meant stre- brought up stress was because I was going to say there's a, there's a difference between um, like, yeah, the first one he's, he's killing people because they're frust- they're frustrating him. Um, and so it's got a more, it's, it's got a little bit more of an ironic kind of black comedy aspect to it because he's taking to extreme what a lot of people would do. But then w- when you actually move into painkiller, um, he's still the same guy in the sense that, you know, he's managed to, you know, get his stress down somewhat, but obviously it's not permanent, but because of what had, um, because of, of what had happened to um, of what had happened to his daughter, um, he's motivated by he's motivated by something that's very personal. So in working with Bill on it, the main thing is first with Bill is that Bill is an incredibly intuitive actor, um, and Bill is just truly one of the greatest actors that a director could ever work with because he is he's so focused, he's so very intuitive and um i don't quite recall um which particular ideas he had i didn't like because i can definitely remember a lot of the ideas that he did he did like uh, or that he that he did um he did come up with um because bill not only understands a character but he understands the he, he understands a more kind of like um the darker aspects of a character because you know i, I think probably like me understands that you know a lot of what's a lot of our lives are in gray, in gray areas you know, like there's really not very little black and white in the real world. You know, you have fairy tales where you have, you know, more black and white, which is maybe why, you know, some of us need fairy tales because we like it more black and white, but the real world is very gray. So in working with Bill, um, I always know that um, if Bill responds to the script, it's almost like something in his head then clicks into it, you know, and, and I don't feel like I then, you know, I've, I've got to have like an enormous amount of conversations with Bill if he basically responds to the text because very Bill's very good at psychologically plugging into where the character is and where the character needs to be. But he'll ask really good questions and the questions are always about 
enriching the character, giving her a better understanding of the character, or he'll even make a suggestion that will add another aspect to the character as he did in this. There was a couple of parts where he had, where he, you know, he suggested, um, you know, some of the, um, some aspects of the scene that he has with a cop that he meets. Um, there was something that he suggested with her. There was a few other things that are about the background of the character. So yeah, both of us are really into the whole aspects of backstory and just understanding the psychological workings because if you can have an actor who understands the character, then that is conveyed on screen. And if it's conveyed on screen, it's conveyed to the audience. Because essentially your lead actor, your star, the star of a movie like this, in a way, they're the storyteller. You know, you know, and I don't mean in a voiceover way, but they're, they're, they're essentially the storyteller because that's a person who we're plugged into and we're willing to go for a ride with that person. So that's why Bill's just the absolute ideal person when you want a storyteller to to take you for a ride because there's no there's nothing between the character and Bill. It's it's like that. You know, that, there's a character, there's Bill. There's nothing between them. They they blend. And that's an amazing thing for, um, you know, for a director. And I just wanted to add the reason I brought up the uh, sort of satirical elements of stress to kill. One thing that annoyed me, I saw some interviews or some reviews of stress to kill trying to really uh, pin it down as being, you know, a, a political movie or, uh, oh, it's just the, the white man's revenge. Or I, I even saw people saying that it was sort of MAGA-like. And the, the thing is, I don't really care about politics and movies. And I did not feel that it was going one way or the other with its politics. Do you think Stress to Kill was maybe misunderstood a bit? Because to me, it was just a, a vigilante melodrama. Yeah, um, I would definitely say a vigilante melodrama. There was a particular uh, reviewer, I remember at one point, um, I won't mention the reviewer, but someone was actually saying that, oh, you know, that it targets certain, it targets um, one person said, well, yeah, you know, he kills a black woman in, in an elevator. And That's so this the is review targeting, I was referring to. Go this on, is targeting certain, um, certain races and um, absolutely not. She was the way she was one of the victims in the movie. There was lots of white men get killed in the movie. There's some white women who get killed in the movie. They're pretty much, it's, um, he's a very, it's very even in who the in who the victims are, and it was simply people who are annoying him. There's no racial aspect. He never he never mentions anything. I can understand that being legitimate. Is for example, every person who was killed was Mexican, or every person was Chinese, every person was um, was black. But they're not. The point of the movie, as you just said, no, it was a in in a way, it was a it was a even handed. I feel um, a film about um, a guy a guy being frustrated with the world. And and because really the idea of him getting his heart rate down is the is the black comedy aspect because that is really ultimately what he's trying to do. So he accomplishes two things: he gets rid of the frustrations and he improves his health at the same time. Yeah, there was there was de definitely never any aspect of it that was MAGA, and also was made, of course, before. For example, MAGA became even a um, a term because it was made like five or five or six or maybe even seven years ago now. So no. There was no political aspect to it whatsoever. It didn't matter. He's 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 reacting to people who are frustrated, and there's a variety of people who are who are who are killed, which and and they're and they're um they're they're black, they're white, they're in they're um uh, they're Hispanic as a Hispanic person, yeah, male and female. Because also at some point someone said also, well, obviously it's it's a um it's a it has a certain misogynistic tone to it. No, it 
it doesn't. We pretty much just, he's dealing with issues. He's dealing with issues that are exaggerated versions of everyone's issues. So for example, it's about the two guys. So they're also frustrated in their relationships. They're, they're married to women. So of course, there's also that aspect to it, but it's about frustration. You know, it's not, it's, we never ever set out to go, yeah, let's tell a political tale, but mask it, but mask it within a thriller. So then I wanted to get into Stress to Kill More, but first I have to ask you, uh, how did you sort of get involved uh, with the world of film and then uh, eventually making movies? Like I mentioned uh, Sensitive New Age Killer, which to me is like the uh, sort of Australia's answer to a Tarantino movie in a lot of ways. Right, right. Yeah, I, look, I got involved very young. I was a... Um, I was a mad movie and horror book fan and um, just a, I always fell in love with just movies when I was a kid watching mostly um, mostly I started with a horror host in Australia called Deadly Earnest and every Friday night he'd show horror movies so I, I'd watch those and that's really how I really got into horror and just into movies in general but yeah I started making super eight movies um, when I was a kid from about 15 to about 18 I made about 100 Super 8 movies, three features, and about 97, it's about 100, 101, 97 shorts. Um, that was really my film school. And then from that, I then um, got into it eventually professionally. I moved back and forth between Australia and America. I also had some um, engagement at one point with um, the Evil Dead guys. I lived in Detroit just before Book of the Dead got released, um, you know, before it became Evil Dead. So, um, you know, I had all these interesting influences from um, people that I met. So hanging out with those guys kind of like said, kind of like said to me, yeah, go back to Australia, start your own movie career. You know, I was already doing it, but I just, I hadn't turned it into a career. So yeah, I mean, I've been doing it pretty much nonstop since I'm like about 15 years old and I've done all kinds of budgets. I've never done super high budgets, but yeah, I've, I've done reasonable budgets and um, I'm happy to be, I'm happy simply just to be, you know, working with, you know, to me, it's all about human behavior. I mean, that's what, that's what fuels my interest in, um, in art, the inconsistency of the human animal, um, you know, just like it's so, the, the, the human being is a is, is an infinite abyss or cave or museum, call it what you want, of of um, of 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 behavior, quirks, um, you know, and, and entire genres. I mean, in, in a sense, like the entire horror genre, the best of the horror genre is built on the human psyche. That's that's where it's. And I mean, and the genre part is almost like a frame for telling human, for humans, they're still human stories, but it's a framing device. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, whenever people ask me what my favorite horror movie is, I people always sort of realize that I'm kind of sort of joking when I say this, but uh, I always say Citizen Kane uh, because to me, Citizen Kane is very existentially horrifying. I mean, you even see it in the imagery, right? I mean, the sort of gothic mansion. And, it, you know, psychologically, it's about a man deteriorating and sort of losing all his friends and not knowing how to love because, uh, well, I don't want to give away the movie for people that haven't seen it, but, uh, you know, it's 80 years old. Why should I go? I think but that's you, right. I love that you idea. You get what I mean, though. Uh, it, it's a very, uh, it's sort of an existential terror movie. And I think uh, horror does provide that so in that sense, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, Bill, uh, did that sort of draw you to this movie? I mean, uh, because you're really sort of the go-to guy uh, in a lot of ways for playing the monsters. I thank you for that. It's the kindest thing, actually, that anybody said to me in months. 
And I mean that. My my heart is with the monster. My sympathy is with the monster. What did Mark say? The inconsistency of the human animal. And that's it. That's absolutely it. But see, JG, we think we're consistent. We like to think we're consistent. And we won't own our shadows. We won't own the shit that's inside of us that we could easily do, that we think about doing, but then press it down, press it down, press it down. Never air it out. Never live in the shadow. That's that's the kind of way to live that gives us the type of society that we're in now. We need to own our shadows. You mentioned Citizen Kane being one of your uh, favorite horror films. Uh, Amadeus is one of my very favorite horror films because Amadeus is a film about a man, Salieri, who was given gifts, but they weren't enough. He wanted more from the universe, God, whatever you will have. He didn't get what he wanted. And then he's confronted with this ass of a human being who has all of the gifts that he wants. And he does everything he can. He, get, he promises to be celibate. He'll give up anything if he can just have these gifts, but he can't have them. Why? Because that's the way it is. Because that's the way it is. Life gives you what it gives you. And Salieri deteriorates and deteriorates. He tries to steal the gifts. He's even frustrated with trying to steal the gifts. He ends up cutting his throat and rolling down the halls of a mental institution saying, mediocrities of the world, I absolve you. I am your patron saint. What an end. And that's it's very, very human. It's, it's, it's hyperbole, but it's what a lot of us do inside because we don't have what we think we should have. All, all of this is to say that the abyss that Mark speaks of, that, that is the human being, that's where I like to live. I don't want to be on the surface. I don't really care anymore what anybody thinks about my work. I don't mean to sound arrogant. It's just that I quit trying and I quit caring. I don't need to be a movie star. I don't need to be rated in any particular place. I just have this stuff inside of me and it boils and bubbles and I need to get it out. And so I explore it through characters uh, like the ones in these two movies. So in that regard, I wanted to ask you, uh, what went into, I'm not saying, did you do any research on this, but how do you approach this character who is grieving over the death of his daughter? Like, what, what's your process for getting into the mindset of this character that is so upset about his daughter's death at the hands of opioids that, you know, he even starts a... Uh, a radio show where he's railing against it. And then he goes out and says, I'm going to take uh, matters into my own hands and make justice happen. How do you get into the mindset of that kind of character? Because it is different uh, from some of your other characters who are, uh, you know, not as uh, sympathetic. I think there's a lot of things about this character that we can empathize with. When you grieve, if you really loved the animal, the person that you're grieving for, your first thought is, this is my fault. I could have done something different. I could have gone to see my mother on that day that she ended up choking in her own blood. I could have held the dog more carefully so he wouldn't fall out of the cart and hurt his back, which led to the medicine that he was put on, which led to him having liver damage, which led to me now being with him in my arms as he's being euthanized. We always think, I could have done something. I could have done something. I could have done something. For me, that was. The, the entry point into this character was um, he knows that he is partly responsible for what happened. Even if he doesn't have an idea exactly why, 
and we did get a line in there <laughs> when he's talking to the uh, policewoman when he says, I'm not blameless. And um, I found that to be very, very truthful. My entry point into any character is wounds. I want to know the wounds. And that's one of the wounds of grief. And my personal experience is this would not have happened if I had fill in the blank. So then, Mark, for you, uh, and, and I guess this would also be a question uh, if Tom Parnell had been here with us, but what research went into uh, the opioid crisis? And, you know, you're collaborating with Tom on this, and it's very personal to him. Uh, what are some of the things you learned about the opioid crisis that you end up including in the film? I think one of the most interesting things we learned, and we cover this to, um, somewhat in the film, is, um, okay, of course, the amount of people who have died is just incredible, just tr so so tragic that if that amount of people, I mean, the amount of people who are dying a year is 10 times more than who died in 9-11. <laughs> You know, you know, and yet the reaction to it is, you know, there have been some documentaries and there, there, there definitely has been some reaction to it, but it's not the sort of reaction you would expect when you've got 10 times more people died in 9-11 every year for about the last 10 years. The other thing that's probably one of the most repulsive things we learned was that the drug companies use something that they call off-target marketing. And this is where a lot of the problems come in. And we do address that in the film. There's a couple of parts where um, he's going after someone who um, he's saying this doctor was involved in the off-target. So what, essentially what it is that when a drug is developed and approved, it's approved for a specific thing. You know, they might say, okay, this is for um, people who are recovering from cancer surgery who have pain. So they need something that's this strong because the pain is literally, you'd be screaming 24 hours a day if you didn't take it. So that, that drug is developed for that. But then they have another form of marketing, um, which is in fact illegal, but it's done anyway. And for many years, the government just looked the other way. That it's called off-target marketing. And this is where doctors will say, oh, actually, why don't you try this? And, you know, even though it's actually aimed at, for example, like a specific niche, like cancer patients, oh, I've got a headache or I've got, a, uh, I've got an infection, take this. So they start pushing drugs that were never intended for that particular market, never intended for that audience. And that's why they've really made the money. Because when the, um, when the, when the um, FDA approves a drug, it's generally approved for a specific use. But the off-target marketing ignores that. It's like, well, let's make money from when we can make, we can make more money from the 10 million people who we can off-target market to than the 200,000 people who it's really going to be meant for each year. And this off-target marketing is, is what's caused to a large extent the um the size of the the, the size of the um this epidemic. It's just it's just absolutely disgusting. And and it's and it's not only of course a street drug, you know, I mean it's a street drug as well, but it's very much pushed by doctors. And a lot of the doctors, they literally become people who are just signing forms. They um interestingly when I was writing it with Tom I stopped at a coffee shop at one point. I was going there regularly. And one day I started talking to the guy who owned the coffee shop and he asked me what I was doing in Tampa. I said, oh, we're making this movie. I'm doing some writing on it at the moment. And he asked me what it was about. I told him and he said, oh, I was a doctor. And I said, oh, so you're not a doctor anymore? He goes, no, 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 I left the profession. Um, and I said, why? He told me the reason he left the profession is because most of his patients became people who would pop in and say to him, can you please write a script out for this, you know, a fentanyl-based drug or whatever, this other opioid? He refused to do it. 
he said he lost about 90% of his patients. Because they'd go, oh, well, I know someone who will write me a prescription. And that's what's caused a lot of the problems is that the people who are, whose job and whose, you know, um, from an ethical point of view, they're supposed to do no harm. They, 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 are, they are writing excessive amounts of prescriptions because I'm not saying that, that some of these drugs don't have a use in a specific area. You know, as I said, it's a gray area. It's not black and white. It's not like ban all those drugs. You don't want to do that. But you're supposed to exercise some responsibility and, and they didn't. And that's what's caused a lot of the, that's what's caused, that's what's caused it to propagate because professional people um, who you trust didn't exercise responsibility. And this is now what you have. Uh, have you, are you familiar uh, by any chance with that? Well, obviously they've been in the news, but I, I recently did a, a show with an investigative journalist about the, the Sackler family who oh, yes. are part of this whole deal. Yeah. Yeah, we 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 uh, we we read a lot about the Sacklers, and um, it's mentioned in the movie too. At one point, um, when Bill's on the radio, he even talks about and a, and a family. He actually, within his dialogue, he actually talks at one point about a family. We do it without actually saying the Sacklers. But yeah, I mean, you know, indirectly and directly, they've been they've been responsible for like it's literally hundreds of thousands of deaths. I mean, if, if you and I are responsible for one or two deaths, we'd be in jail for the rest of our lives. That's why you know it's a it's a different rule for some, and uh, unfortunately, there's very, you know I don't know the answer the answer to that because the people who are benefiting from the status quo are the people who you need to change the status quo. So where's their motivation? So Bill, I want to go back to you. Uh, these monologues that you give throughout the film uh, during the portions where you're on the radio, uh, how do you sort of get these monologues out? Uh, and how do you get down things like the the intonation, uh, the facial expressions? I mean, is it is it taxing? Do you, how many takes does it usually take? What, what all goes into that? What are the technical aspects of it? Um, I asked Mark about that, about the type of delivery that he wanted originally. Um, again, <laughs> my instincts are always wrong, JG. I was thinking sort of a Rush Limbaugh bombastic, which was not right for the character, where it was more of a rapid fire, uh, almost a stream of consciousness as if he's talking to himself, but you happen to be listening in. I come from a radio background. Uh, I did radio in high school. I did radio in college. That was the early days of talk radio. So that was the days when... FM people were uh, crossing over into uh, talk radio and the way that I delivered those monologues as Bill was the way that the people that I was schooled in talk radio um, delivered. It was before the era of um, bombast and long pauses and drama. It was more of a, this is in my mind and I have to get it out. And I don't really care how angry I, I sound. I'm going to tell you this. And he's not always kind to his callers, you notice. If people call in and they don't seem to have um, to be as serious about it as he is, uh, he'll cut them off. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's not about coddling anyone. Hmm. Um, he believes that he has a truth that has to be told. And he's telling it. But I don't think he'd be very good in Twitter. In other words, the way that we think of truth-telling in this society, he wouldn't be any good at it. He wouldn't have the patience for it, I don't think. But the radio was the perfect medium for him. 
Um, we, I don't think we took many takes. Mark can correct me if I'm wrong on the radio stuff. No, um, look, as I said, Bill's an absolute professional. And once what I find is once you establish with Bill the way things are in terms of this, this is good to be like this, this needs to be at this level tonally, that's what he gives you. And he, and he, and he gives it to you like sometimes I just find myself like, staring at him slack-jawed that he just got through all his terminology like in the first take and you know most people even if they were reading it you know and looking at the words would be stumbling on the words whereas Bill's making it seem very effortless and to me that's his professionalism is that he he always makes it seem like and this is what you want from every performance he always makes every line of dialogue seem like it's being spoken for the first time it's coming out of his is coming out of his thought process I mean that's a very rare thing because that's that's because you, you're way beyond you know knowing what the you know you're way beyond knowing the text i mean that's when you then in a way are reversing it because you don't want to sound like you know the text it's got to be emerging organically from your thoughts and that's what bill does really well and also the whole idea of being on the radio you know that was a choice to do that because it's a really inter- I mean, number one, I love talk radio. I always have. I've, I've listened to talk radio from when my father used to drive me to work as a uh, drive me to school when he drove to work as a kid. I used to listen to talk radio. My parents always listen to talk radio. They had it on all the time. Um, so I love radio. I still listen to radio. I love the medium. And it's a really interesting um, area visually to do something where you can get exposition. You can get you can get information out but you can also make it interesting. And I'd say that one influence on where it's done in a very interesting way for me is Oliver Stone's talk radio, you know, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, Not just because of the radio, but I think it's just a really brilliant film on on so many levels, but you know, real real quick that that's for people that don't know, that's a a movie about the assassination of uh, the sort of shock jock Alan Berg uh, by these neo-Nazis it actually happened back in the 80s, the real events. I had uh, the author of the, the book it's based on on my oh. show, uh, oh. Stephen Singler. It's a fascinating oh. story, but go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great book. I think it, the book's um, The Life and Death of Alan, of Alan Berg. Um, yeah, it, um, Stone, what Stone and, and his DP Robert Richardson did with the radio format in that was really interesting because, yeah, they obviously said most of this film is going to be set in a radio station, and let's just make it really visually interesting. And I think that they did an extraordinary job. And unfortunately, it's one of it's a fairly more unknown um, Stone film. It didn't do it didn't do well um, economically, but I, I think it's one of the most one of his in his top three. But yeah, for this, it, it was having something where it would enable Bill to communicate information, communicate his communicate his emotions. Because you don't want to be just talking to people. And I just didn't want to have pages of facts coming up on the screen at the beginning or at the end. I wanted to do it in a process that it seemed like was more like natural. And that's why speaking it, you know, um, in, in a way, communicating it on a radio show was a good way to do it without it feeling like exposition. And I also did it previously in, in my um prior film the horror film purgatory road where i've got a girl expressing her emotions and her craziness and her her psychopathy her psychopathy to a radio host um so you're also getting her feelings there as well you know rather than her saying oh i'm a i'm crazy i'm thinking this and thinking that to the mirror she's doing it to that so that's why to me it's a really good medium 
really good visual medium for that. And I thought, yeah, Bill really responded. You really responded to it well. And these days people do have these kind of setups at home. So it's no longer something that say 20 years ago would have been like, well, there's no way he would have had that kind of setup at home doing his own, um, doing his own show. But this is a, this is a new era where people can do their own shows at home and, and they've got those kind of setups. Yeah, it's interesting too, because now you even have uh, a lot of the sort of professional radio hosts uh, doing video versions of their shows now that you can yes. watch on live stream. I mean, uh, what's interesting to me is, uh, so Bill mentioned, you know, uh, that maybe initially he wanted to go for, you know, this really bombastic type thing that you would see from like a Rush Limbaugh. And when I was watching the movie, the, the first thing I thought uh, when the radio uh, sort of portions came up, I, I was thinking to myself, I really hope he doesn't go into this like uh, way too over the top, top almost carnival style of say like uh, an Alex Jones. Yes. So yes. how did you guys uh, sort of figure out, uh, you know, the, the sort of barriers for the character that you didn't want to want the character to cross? Um, if, if you get what I mean, like how do you, uh, reel the character in uh, from being too over the top. You want to answer that first, Bill? Well, there's a sound that directors make when they're pleased, but it's not audible. <laughs> and you can tell if you have a relationship with the director, it's little body movements, um, little, little breath. Sometimes you can hear a little breath. But every director has a thing that they do that you know that you're in line. So you get all the information you can. And then when you actually start working, you're very, very attuned for it's not it's not the same as saying, did I do good? Did I do good? Did I do good? It's not that at all. It's more, am I in the world and how much in the world am I? And so that's, again, for me, why knowing the director and having had all these conversations beforehand having some kind of a personal relationship is key. That's the way that I know that it's too far is if I can sense from this unspoken language from the director that this isn't exactly right. Sometimes you can even catch it out of the periphery of your eye during a take and you begin to make adjustments. You have to, you have to be wounded to be an actor. I don't, Mark can tell you if the same is true for a filmmaker, but part of the actor's wound is we want to please. Um, it's kind of cloying sometime, but we really do want to please. And we want to serve the frame, serve the composition, serve the story, serve the director. So at least for me, I'm like a very, very servant oriented, no matter what I'm playing, what the crazy shit is. For me, the actor, I'm service oriented and I want to make sure that I'm serving and doing my job. That's really important to me. I hope that was an answer. I also feel that um, I'm, I'm also, as a director, serving the idea and serving the script and the concept. And um, I think one of the, I think something you need to learn when you're directing, and this is because I've been doing it for quite a while, and I'm not in any way saying I'm, I'm where I want to be in terms of like, oh, yeah, I, I get it. Because you don't really, because you're learning all the time. Every film is a new experience so it's an ongoing education when you're making movies there's no point where you go okay i know it i get it um every film's going to be amazing it doesn't work like that you know every film you bring to it something brand new and on this one yeah i would say that 
I'm always thinking of it in terms of the tonal differences between characters, you know, that, for example, if if Bill had been, say, for example, more Rush Limbaugh, um, or, or maybe even say Alex Jones, is, it's probably a more uh, relatable example. Um, if you have someone who's at that pitch, especially when he's at his kind of like most fanatical, you know, his angriest, craziest, um, you then sort of, well, how do we then bring all the other performances into that line? Because you don't want someone who's so much at the other end of the spectrum that there's a massive leap when there's another character comes on you. So, because in a way, when you cast and and even just your the characters that you're putting in um, to tell the story, which are all serving the story, it's in a way like, it's like an orchestra. So you've got some people are the woodwinds, some of the brass, you know, some of the percussion, you can't have all percussion. You can't have all brass. You know, every single. Um, so all the actors are almost like that. Um, that you're. Um, they're all. It's a. It's they're all complementing each other, but you've also got to establish a tone or a frequency. And you sort of go. This character goes to this frequency, but you might sort of go. Okay, this character's here. This character's here, but the character that's here cannot go up there. Because, otherwise, it. it it, it then sort of, you're almost then breaking the ceiling of that world. You establish the world and go, that's a floor, that's a ceiling. And a story happens within the floor and ceiling. Then the audience knows it's happening within that. Okay. And it can be up and down, you know, and, you know, you, you have all kinds of stuff that's happening within those walls and ceiling um, or the, the floor and ceiling. And in a way to establish for this film, yeah, the reason why I never thought it would work having him screaming is because people tune out. So they'll tune out the information that he's saying, you know, if, if, and I think that's, that is what happens to the, you know, what you would call the, um, you know, the old sort of shock jocks, or even someone like Howard Stern is not near as high pitch now than he was say 20 years ago. I mean, I, I love Stern. I, I listen to Stern a lot, um, but even he's done the same thing. Ironically, he's doing his show from home too now, you know? So, but the whole point is that pitch is really important. That tone is so important to me that that's about casting. It's about the way you shoot it that having consistent tone is super important. I think that's why sometimes someone will see a, a film um, and they'll say, gee, you know, I really like that, but oh my God, what was, what, who is blah, 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 who is blah, blah, blah supposed to be in that? That was, that was so over the top. It's almost like either the director has allowed him to do that, didn't have a handle on it, or maybe just misjudged it. But I think that tone is, tone is very, very important, you know, um, in a movie. And I just think you get better at understanding tone the more films you've made. Because I, when I think of the first film that I ever made, Marauders, the first the first feature for commercial release, um, yeah, I wasn't thinking about things like tone. I was thinking about shots, you know, and then it all shifted. Do I, and, and it shifted after someone said one day, oh, my God, um, that particular actress, where did you find her? And it was like they were criticising the film based on the actor. And I thought, you know, that's my fault because I did the casting. So it's more her, it's more my fault than her fault because I cast someone who wasn't really right for the role, you know. Um, so then that switch that turned me, I think, 180 degrees. I started going in a whole new direction where it all became about the character and, and you know, don't cast your friends, you know, basically, and unless they're friends who are amazing professionals because Bill's a friend, but Bill's an amazing professional, you know. But the thing is, the tone is, the tone is just something you instinctively just need to need to know. There's no book to show you how to gauge the tone, but you've just got to be able to listen. But if you really understand the material, you start asking, what's the best way to communicate 
everything that we want to everything that we want to do to draw the audience in, not hit them on the head. And that's the other thing. I didn't want to hit them on the head because there's a lot of information being conveyed with a radio show. If you've got him screaming and ranting and conveying it, I just think people will both tune out and get really irritated. And that's the last thing that you want because you're trying to tell within the theme, you're trying to tell a human story. Yeah, and what's interesting too is I'm glad that you went with the approach you did go with because, you you know, I could see... uh, you know, a radio host doing the whole Alex Jones thing. But uh, the way you do it, Bill, is, you know, th- there's a slowness at times to it uh, and then a speeding up at times. But there's always these facial expressions that you're making, as you do in many films. And you can tell that while you're speaking and delivering your lines, there's also a part of this character that has something else going on in the back of his mind. He's uh, sort of in two places at once. He's trying to communicate to the audience, but he's also in this state of grief that he's trying not to always let out too much. I I really appreciate you saying that, JG, because that's, to me, an authentic character has many things going on at one time. Just like, you know, right now, I've got a song in the back of my head that's been there for a few days. I'm sure Mark has stuff, you have stuff, but we're making ourselves communicate over top of it. But if you're with a real human being in the real world, you see that stuff in their eyes. Sometimes you don't even need facial or body expressions. And I think that uh, an audience can, something instinctive clicks when they say that's a real person or that's someone pretending to be a real person. So then I also wanted to ask, uh, and and this is sort of a two-part question, uh, one for Mark and, and one for Bill, but I want to get into uh, Michael, I, I believe it's pronounced uh, Pare or Par. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so for you, Mark, I wanted to know, uh, how did he become in the, in involved in the film? And why did you sort of want him as the villain? Okay. So um, I know, I'd known Michael for um, a few years, um, met, him through, met him through some friends, and he and I had been talking about doing something. And when this came up, I thought it would actually work nicely because Michael's able to be charming. Um, and because he's a charming, he's a charming character, you know, he's a handsome guy, you know, he was, you know, he, he has a, a history, you know, from, you know, Eddie and the Cruisers, Streets of Fire, you know, both excellent films. And he, he, he built up a, you know, he built up a good body of work over the years, but yeah, but he was, He's really good at being. He's really been good at charming, but I'll be able to shift between charm and and darkness, you know, charm and maliciousness. Because what you have here is that you have a you have a doctor, and it's established very early in the film. You see the three faces of the character in the very first scene with him, where one point he's with a patient, the next point he's giving drugs to someone, the next point he's actually got his um, current girlfriend in there, and he's charming her, almost giving her a little dance move in the office. So Michael's very good at basically shifting between between those things because you need somebody you need somebody who the audience can understand why he was able to get away with this kind of stuff, you know, because you don't want someone who's just like a really you know disagreeable, irritating, um, just difficult to be around sort of character because then no one achieves anything being like that. And I, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, what's interesting to me about his character is. And I don't want to spoil anything, but 
he has his own wounds as well oh, yes. from his past and his yes. family. And yes. I, I think that's a really interesting aspect is you really have fully fleshed out characters here. And I, I wanted yes. to ask Bill, uh, there's a very tense scene uh, in the movie where you're, you know, right across from Michael's character. And I don't know um, if it was all shot with with you both in the room together uh, or if you were, you know, using camera tricks to uh, move back and forth between the characters. Uh, but I, I know that you were working with him uh, at least a bit in that scene. Uh, when it comes to working with another actor and you're both uh, sort of the main actors in this movie, how do you, you know, balance things out so that one actor isn't outshining the other. And I ask this because uh, there, there's an old Scorsese movie. I think it was Mean Streets where uh, Cattell was sort of the main character, uh, but there's been a lot of criticism over how De Niro sort of tries to steal the spotlight from him throughout the movie, even though he's the supporting character. So how do you sort of uh, keep a balance where, you know, you're both, sharing the spotlight in a way that makes both characters feel uh, impactful and important. Give it away. Never try to take. Never, never, never. You'll look like an ass and you'll kill the scene. Give it to the other. Even, no matter, even if it's uh, uh, um, you're interacting with somebody who only has two lines in the movie, give that scene to them. Make it theirs. Because if that happens, they're going to feel that generous energy and they're going to give you stuff that you never thought would come from that actor. And it will lift the entire scene. And as a selfish consequence, you'll look good. <laughs> you know, the scene looks good. The frame looks good. You look good. Uh, Michael is a legitimate movie star, man. And um, he's been in big stuff. He's, he has a movie star aura about him. Um, he's great. He knows how to choreograph stunts and fights. Uh, I, I gave Everything that I was involved with with him, I gave it to him and let him shine. Um, and that's always the way that I approach that. Never, never try to shine. Is there anything that you would want to add to that, Mark? And then I, I have a few more questions for you, Mark, before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, I think if someone is, if someone, you know, I think if someone like appears to be, or you feel like they're, you know, they're, they're dominating to the detriment of the character, I think it is a director's job to step in and just, you know, get them to pull it back. But, but, you know, explain why, you know, I mean, there's a reason why you ask someone to do something and, and the actors deserves to know that if you feel, and again, and, and it's, once again, it comes back to tone that, you know, that if you establish, if you establish the right tone and also your shot selections is also going to settle up because like, you probably remember that the beginning of that scene, they're both on the opposite sides of the um, desk. There's a desk in the middle and one's on the right and one's on the left. And that was shot at the same time. Yeah, they, they were both there live. But I can understand why you would ask that because, yeah, it's a sort of scene that you could say, you know, Bill's not available here, so let's shoot him first. And, you know, if you keep a static table in the middle, then we can shoot Michael on the other side. But, no, they they were, they were definitely there. But, yeah, it's, again, establishing tone. And if I, if I feel that, you know, something is dominating, I mean, if they're supposed to dominate, that's fine. But to me, that scene was all about, you see the powers of both people. And you also see that in a sense, Bill's not afraid of him. And Bill also has, to some extent, the upper hand because he doesn't give a shit. That, that, and, and in a way, that's the power of confidence. That's, that's a power of knowing what you are, 
and not having to prove anything, which also comes down to Bill's earlier comment about as an actor, he doesn't care whether he's liked or hated or he's not about that. He's about serving the, you know, serving the character and, and serving the script that, yeah, I, I just think it's super important. And to me, that's why as a um, part of what directing is, is, is in a way keeping the frequency right and making sure that everything is being communicated in the way it's supposed to be, at least in the raw materials. Because remember, the shoot is only creating the raw materials. The edit is when you start chiseling at the raw materials. So I also wanted to ask, since this is a vigilante film, uh, are there any other vigilante films that you were sort of influenced by or thinking about while you made this uh, or any favorite vigilante movies you have? Uh, yeah. Um, actually, one of my, a, a, a vigilante, a vigilante film that I, I really like, it's actually a French, it's a French film based on a Donald Westlake novel called The Axe. And it's about a guy who starts eliminating. He's got. He's an architect looking for a job. He starts eliminating other applicants for the job because the film's set in a small town, and he um, he knows that there's not a lot of jobs available for architects. So he actually first sets himself up as an employment agency, so everyone will send him his applications. When he's got the applications, he then kills them, so he's unavailable for the job. Like that's a great. That's an amazing, that's a really, that's a really amazing film, French film. You know, I like the original, you know, I like the original um, Death Wish. I like, I like, probably I like the first three Death Wish films. I mean, they're, they're, they're not as, um, you know, like the original, um, you know, Garfield novel of Death Wish is, is quite, quite different to the, to the uh, Michael Winner, to the Michael Winner movie. But yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I mean, I like I mean I like vigilante films. I actually really like the James Wan film too. Um, the one that he, the vigilante one he made with uh, with Kevin Bacon, which again is a is from a Brian Garfield from a, a death sentence from a Brian Garfield novel. To me, that's one of my favorite actual James Wan films. It's probably the least you hear about because I think it didn't do as well box office wise. But it's it's I think it's an amazing. I think that's an amazing movie. Yeah, it's always interesting to me with vigilante films because. I'll admit, I'm I'm kind of like a a, a bleeding heart guy. I, I lean to the left socio-politically, but I, I always love watching movies. Like recently I saw uh, 10 to Midnight, uh, the, the crazy oh, yeah. Charles Bronson movie that's both an action movie and a slasher movie. And it's interesting because even as sort of like a bleeding heart, near, near the end of the film, when the killer, uh, who's based, I think, on Richard Speck, is like, well, I'll, yeah. I'll get away with it because... I'll just say I'm crazy. And Charles Bronson yeah, is like, that's no, a, you won't. Even, yeah, that, even though I have that sort of bleeding heart mentality, maybe in my real life, there yeah. is something so cathartic about seeing that in the, the sort I, of realm of fantasy. I, I agree. Look, I'm, I'm a bleeding heart in my real life too. You know, I mean, I'm also not, a, I'm not even someone who's that interested in guns, you know, like uh, I like him in movies you know, but, um, you know, I'm not like a, I'm not like a gun, I'm not like a gun collector, um, you know, it's not something, but I love them in movies in the same way. I also like smoking in movies because it's very cinematic, but I don't smoke and I don't think smoking is good for you. You know what I mean? So the whole point is, but, you know, there's certain things which are just very, very cinematic, very cinematic. And I think that something when you actually have like, um, I mean, a murder is cinematic, but so is dancing, dancing is cinematic, you know, um, that, uh, 
a lot of this, a lot of the stuff in movies, you know, which which we um which we enjoy, which we enjoy in a way like viscerally, um, they're not necessarily things we enjoy in real life, but we enjoy the ballet of it, you know. And so even the action scenes in Painkiller, yeah, like when I say action, the killing scenes, I didn't want to make them too actiony. So that's why there's a sequence in the middle where you have him killing a string of people. And it's narrated, it has Bill's narration over it because I, initially it was like written as like a montage of killings. But then while we were actually, um, you know, while we were shooting it, I just thought to myself, there's no way, there's no way I'm doing a montage of killings in the middle of this because it's also kind of like it diminishes what he's doing. It just becomes like a, you know, like a, a montage of killings. It diminishes it. So that's why we end up having a voiceover about grief and that voiceover was written by Tom Parnell, who wrote directly from the grief that he was feeling when he lost a child. Because as you'll probably remember, that entire sequence is about what it's like to lose a child. So that's intercut with the killings. That was to me so important to do that. And I just would have been, I would have been mad at myself and actually so ashamed if I didn't do that. Because if I just turned into a montage, I almost would have killed everything else that surrounds it. Was this a difficult film for Tom to do because I know there's the dedication at the end for his his mm. uh, child who um you know uh, was succumbed to uh opioids could you talk a, a little bit about that if you're okay yeah. with talking about that was it a difficult it, process for him it was I think initially the writing of it was the most difficult part because it just dredged up so much because you know his son hadn't been gone for that long when we wrote it like um I think he'd, he'd been gone for about 18 months and um the son was um so tom you know still dealing of course there's never a time when you don't deal with a grief you know it's it's simply just it you know it just changes and you change as a result so there's no point when you go okay i'm done with it you're always grieving forever so the whole point is um he was at a very very sensitive time when he did it. And even when i asked him about it because i'd said to him you know if we do something with that character again i said to him what about if we do a film that's actually about the whole um the opioid epidemic, you know, that that killed Jordan, your son. And he says, yeah, that's interesting. He goes, let me think about it. And so, yeah, he thought about it for a while. And then he got back to me and said, you know what? I really want to do it. And I almost, almost want to do it as a tribute to him, knowing that we at least did something that was in response to it, that if nothing else, people will at least kind of like, um, you know, have more of a sense about how broad the how broad the problem is and how it affects everybody and families, which is why I've got the, the the sequences where people are calling into Bill on the radio and all of those are based on real stories. Like all the people who are calling in, like um, are based on um, real stories that we'd heard about from from the research. I was going to say I, I like the part where uh, someone calls in, and this gets repeated by um, Michael's character as well. But there's always someone that will say, well, you know, what whatever happened to self-responsibility? Right, right, I, right. I love how you sort of uh, handle that issue and, and that argument that people will make. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was important, I thought, to do that because um, you don't want to show something that's so biased that it never, ever has. It never has any opinion from the other side at all. Because Mike, Michael also represents that opinion on the other side, and he even makes a couple of statements a couple of times well you know well if i don't do it someone else will and 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 if um and this drug could be good for this as well and it's your own choice to do this and then bill has a counter argument for that that i think it is definitely important to include the counter argument otherwise 
Otherwise, the the treatment of the subject can come across just as very kind of almost very juvenile, like kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, drugs are bad and that's that. And we're going to shoot the drug people. You know, you know, you you want to definitely be able to introduce, uh, you know, introduce a counter argument, even if the argument often seems either hysterical or it's not necessarily a, an airtight counter argument. It's still good to at least voice the counter argument, because I think at least conveys then that that we we're, that we're well aware of the counter argument. You know, what I mean, it's not like we don't know what the counter argument is of, of you know personal responsibility, which that's that's what he, that's what the guy calls about. But you know, the whole point is is that when you're giving drugs to people who it was never intended for that person, this is why you start having addiction, and the addiction then becomes something that's really really difficult for people to control. So the personal responsibility, really, instead of talking about people's personal responsibility. Who are taking the drugs? Um, it's it's sad that people are not talking with just as much passion about the personal responsibility of doctors to say no, I'm not prescribing this, and telling the drug companies who constantly are marketing to them, you know, can you please push this, and we'll you know we'll send you on a holiday. Can you do this, and we'll give you this, and give you that. The personal responsibility and professional responsibility really should be starting there. Then you wouldn't. Then you wouldn't have the other issues that you have. There were just two more things I wanted to cover, um, and, and the first is uh, another thing that gets brought up in the film. Uh, I don't know how to put this any other way. I know it's a uh, political hot button topic, but you uh, sort of get into this issue of privilege at times. You know, you have the one character that says to Michael, "Oh, don't worry, you'll you'll get away with it. You're you're uh, you're a white guy." But yeah. there's also that element of um, I think there's a, a sort of critique of, uh, you know, class privilege, because I think that Bill and Michael uh, come from very different backgrounds. Their characters do. And, you know, Michael is sort of protected because he has uh, all this wealth and the prestige of his degrees. And I was wondering, was that sort of intentional? Uh, did you want to comment on those things in the yeah. movie? No, of course. Yeah, definitely commenting on um, that the rules that the rules only that the rules apply apply to people in in different ways and morality is really for the poor and um people who don't have control this whole idea of being moral and being this it's always like pushed at it's always pushed at at minorities it's always pushed at people in the lower economic rungs constant morality but morality the idea the concept just doesn't really exist for the for the super rich and the powerful like you know because the morality is just it's it's well it's an irrelevancy and it can't and it can't be used it sort of can't be used used by them because they have they have money which kind of like compensates and that buys them it buys them the um it buys them out of the problems whereas the people who don't have that money they don't get bought out of the problems they go to jail and then they're seen because they're in jail as oh well they were you know they did an immoral thing you know because we know they did because they're in jail as opposed to people who, well, this person didn't go to jail. So I guess in a way, they probably what they did wasn't as bad because they didn't go to jail. No, they use money to they use money and, and influence to buy their ways out of it. So no, that was definitely a thing that I thought was important to, you know, bring into the argument. Yeah. And especially as you say, um, that's the important line when he actually says, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit worried what's happening to doctors. And yeah, and he, and he says, Well, don't worry, you know, you're you're too white to worry. You know, that's 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 the truth. You know, and especially when, especially when, but especially when it's white and powerful, you know, white and rich, because at the same time, there's also a lot of people who are white and poor, 
who also are going to jail. You know what I mean? So I mean, I mean, everyone who's poor has less chance of beating any rap. And and but also it is definitely more difficult if you're not white um, as well. So there's all kinds of levels of hurt that you experience, but when you're at the level that they're at, that's why the Sackler family got away with this. Like you and I, not being not being wealthy, you know, being being white, sure. But the thing is, we're not going to get away with what the Sacklers got away with. Well, I, I was just going to add to that too. I mean, I've always been, uh, to be honest, in a way, I've been a civil libertarian when it comes to the issue of the war on drugs, because to me, the war on drugs, it doesn't seem like it's, I mean, we've been waging it since Nixon and then it really gets yes. underway uh, with Reagan. But the, the people that seem to get most affected by it and hit by it uh, are the people who have addiction problems. Yes. It seems like yes. we don't get the people who are actually, no. you know, the pushers. You're right. No, you never do. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's why it never gets, and that's why it never gets solved because also the pushers, you know, the, the pharma companies, the bigger drug companies, or they, they're the ones with the they're the ones with the connections to the that they're, they're so connected to power that yeah they never they never they never suffer so everyone else gets kind of scapegoated as a face of the problem whereas they're the real face of the problem so the last thing i wanted to deal with um is so this this movie i i would say it is in the tradition of you know a, a melodrama um, uh, vigilante style genre film. And what really interests me is uh, I think it can be difficult to do a movie like this because you're dealing with hot button uh, social topics that are very, you know, uh, in the mainstream news, but you're also trying to work within the, the framework of a genre film. And I always love, um, you know, I'm a big Roger Corman fan. Uh, people laugh yeah. when I say that sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, I, I love that uh, when Corman is asked, uh, do you like being called a B-movie filmmaker? He'll say no. Well, how about an exploitation filmmaker? Oh, I like that. And uh, I've seen people comment on uh, Painkiller and say, oh, you know, this movie deals with a very serious topic, uh, but it, it feels too exploitative. And I've always been annoyed by that kind of critique because I feel like, as Roger Corman has said, every movie exploits something the audience wants to see. And I think in this case, what the audience wants to see is the catharsis of seeing, hey, you know, these these pharma bros and the the yeah. the, the, the the legalized pushers going down. So could you talk a little bit about uh, the, the nature of exploitation films and, uh, you know, maybe how they can actually be useful in spreading or sending a message? And also yeah. giving people catharsis. Yeah, well, at some point, I remember um, Tom and I, Tom even said to me, should we do a, maybe like do a documentary on this subject? And I said, yeah, you could do a documentary on it. But the thing is, doing it as an exploitation film, I think in a way, opens people more up to the idea to consider the concept. Because by its nature, you know, an entertainment film, you know, someone watching it for entertainment first and foremost, um, you know, you're very, you're very, you're very receptive to the entertainment aspect to send the message, which is why, for example, commercials on TV try to be entertaining while sending their message. You know, they don't just have the product. There's a reason why they don't just have the product on a table for 30 seconds and go buy this. They build 
entertainment, Im entertaining images around the product. So on this here, you know, we're, we're basically got an exploitation, an exploitation genre film, but that's, but that's actually embedded in a social problem. So the challenge is then becoming, let's then balance out the social problem aspect with the entertainment aspects. And probably what I talked about before, for example, like the killing sequence in the middle, that's where you actually are addressing the clash of the two. Because to me, that's where you go, okay, it's an exploitation film. Let's here try to really combine both of them. So you're combining grief and the problem with the drugs with the killings at the same time, which to me makes it more potent but you're not giving the audience a catharsis that they would have gotten if it was just like a montage of, you know, um, blood and flailing bodies and people falling into water and that type of thing. You know, you're actually trying to basically bring it all together in, in that there. And yeah, I think the best messages are always conveyed when you do it entertain entertainingly in, in well, some meaning by engaging people with the imagery and the sound um, and the story. And I think, I think then people remember more then if you make something that's so heavy handed that it's mostly a social documentary with some entertainment, I think the, uh, the, the audience is more likely to tune out unless they're an audience for documentaries, which, which is not the majority. Um, and like someone like a Michael Moore does very entertaining documentaries, even him, he makes entertaining documentaries that are not, you know, then then the message is strong, but he's not making films that you fall asleep to or that you are finding it too heavy handed. So, yeah, I mean, I think exploitation and I, I of course, I love um, I love Corman as well. And um, I, I think that, um, I mean, Corman's Shatner film, interesting, you know, the early Shatner film about um, what was it, the... Um, the Intruder. Uh, it's a race that, relations movie. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting film where he. That's an interesting film where he sort of made an entertaining film, um, but also dealt with race relations. But then again, he also dealt with race relations in some of the motorcycle films. But by then, it was more entertainment than it was actually social issues. So yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma on each film. To and and, and again, probably I know I sound like a broken record now. It all again just comes back to balance and tone. And you've got to apply that to every decision when you're making a movie, but also keeping your audience in mind. And the audience for this film, first and foremost, is people who like entertaining, like exploitation, exploitation style films. But the backbone is important because I just would, I just would not interested in making a film that's just about, for example, just like a remake of Death Wish. That's not inter that's not entertaining to me, which is why even Stress to Kill also had to be about him dealing with his blood pressure and his health and, and the way that people around him are affecting him. You know, to me, I, I'm, I guess I'm just not at a point in my life now, maybe I was when I was 20, that I just want to make it from about angry guy killing criminals on the street. I, I, I'm, I'm no longer, I'm just no longer emotionally invested enough in it to, to make it, even though I, I, even though I would, I would watch it. And I, I just wanted to go back to that comment because the, the, that Corman comment that, that that Roger has made where he's like, well, all films are exploitation in a way. I've thought mm. about that a lot because, yeah. you know, you, you look at a movie like Titanic, there is an element of exploitation to it in so much as, well, first off, you're covering a real life tragedy. But what is being exploited in that film is the desire that the audience has to see a romance or to feel like they're in this deep romance. So even, you know, all these Academy Award films, there's always an element of you're exploiting something the audience wants to see in any kind of film. It doesn't matter if it's uh, 
uh, a quote unquote exploitation movie or a movie at the Academy Awards. Uh, so I was wondering if you could comment on that and and maybe uh, wax philosophical a bit. I think part I think part of the use of the exploitation comment is kind of like pretty kind of like uh, really quite kind of cl- quite you know quite classist and elitist because you've got a lot of films of, of say for example of a subject matter it seems to be if it's a hundred if it's a it's a, if it's a, if it's a 50 million dollar film like a diehard it's like an action film but if it's a two hundred thousand dollar film about people breaking into you know like an assaulted precinct 13 like carpenter's first film you know that's exploitation is if somehow the budget is going to ch- as if somehow a different budget makes it less exploitative. It, it's not. And because I think your definition is right. All you're doing, exploiting really means just using an element. You're using certain, making the most of certain elements. And whether it's a film about, a, whether it's a love story, you can say, well, that's exploiting people's ideal of love, you know, or whether it's about crime, people's idea of crime. It's all, yeah, it's all exploitation. And, but you can also say none of it is exploitation. If you're going to say, well, Die Hard's not exploitation, but the first assault of Precinct at 13, or say Josh Becker's Thou Shalt Not Kill, about the which is a war film, you know, are you going to say that, that that's, oh, that's a war film? But no, that would be described as exploitation, but St- Stallone's, sorry, Stone's Platoon, that's not exploitation. They're both Vietnam films. You know, and I was wondering, I, I don't know if you have any comments on that, Bill, but you've went from playing, you know, characters that are like really intense uh, from vigilantes and even, you know, uh, killers like um, it, what was the TV show? Uh, it wasn't Law and Order. I think it was that you were Criminal in Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds. Yes. You, you play the unsub in Criminal Minds. And then you, you've also played on stage uh, like Ray Bradbury. So you, you play these wide range of characters. And I'm wondering. Uh, what is it like to go from a character like Ray Bradbury to the character in Painkiller? They're not different. They're only different in expression. They're not different in potentiality. Uh, I don't. I don't believe. I hope I never believe, but I'm probably bullshitting myself. I probably didn't believe when I was younger that they were good people and bad people and in between people. It's bullshit. We all have the potential within us uh, to be really, really wicked are really, really loving. Sometimes we can be both at the same time or to different people at different moments. It's just a matter of expression. I think of it like a gene. The gene is expressed. I mean, it's all the same uh, uh, code. It's it's all the same basic genetic material. It's just expressed in different ways. And that that's what I think of it. Uh, could Ray Bradbury have killed people? Absolutely. In fact, he said, I write murder so that I will not kill. It would sound a little more like uh, David Brinkley than Bradbury, but it's been a while. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do believe that uh, uh, Bill in Painkiller also had the uh, potential to be uh, joyous, um, to be uh, 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 over the top um, happy. Um, he's not expressing that at this moment, but we all have the same potentiality. The, the difference between Mother Teresa and Osama bin Laden is the difference of expression. And, and I, I could be really, really wrong about this, JG. I could be really wrong, but I don't believe that at the core of us, unless there's something mentally wrong, I don't believe that there's a wild variance in what we are potentially capable of as human beings. Well, I, I think that's a great way to sum it up. We're all human at the end of the day, and we all have our joys and our pains and all the rest. 
But Mark, I, I also, and, and I didn't, I, I'm sorry if I've kept you over time, but I, I just thought about this. There's a whole subplot in Painkiller about um, patents and an attempt to sort of steal a patent away from someone. Uh, was that based on anything real or did you do anything uh, with regards to research into uh, patent laws and sort of skullduggery with patents? Yeah, it, it was a combination of research into patents, how people um, um, are, are that they, there are like literally patent, patent wars all the time. You know, people um, coming up with patents to basically illustrate some difference between one thing and another. Um, it just seemed like a very good, it seemed like a very good device um, that, that, you know, that we could use to show um, what, you know, what, what was the main, you know, what was the main tension between the two characters, because, you know, the doctor character, um, you know, played by Tom Parnell, who, who is the, um, the man who lost his son, um, the doctor character and Perret's character were business partners, you know, so it made sense that, you know, it was going, well, what can be like the, the main rift between them? It's something that, at face value, just seems like a simple thing. Oh, a pattern. But this is what this is. This is where people go from becoming, um, you know, a thousandaire to a millionaire or or a a billionaire is the exercising um, of patents and winning patent rights. And it's rife in this business where people are creating um, constant new drugs and trying to again um, make them for one thing, knowing that ultimately they're going to off-target market them to the real audience that they're meant for. And this is the, this is an underhanded process um, that is going on, that it's often a patent's created and approved, and then it's then shifted to something else, which is its, which is its ultimate market where the real money is made. So that's why patents to us just seem like something that was, um, you know, a good dramatic device. And it's really apropos now because, I mean, this issue of patents and uh, medicine has come up a lot because of, uh, well, th there's been issues with patents and uh, the vaccines now with yeah. Uh, COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty fascinating it's a fascinating issue. We didn't want to obviously yeah have too much about it because you know just people talking about patents is not is not interesting. But just as a device, we wanted something that seemed that seemed to have a legitimate a legitimate weight. So if anyone was going to bother to go, well, I'm going to look up a bit about that to see, was that really worth going to war over? Yeah, people do go to war over over patents. I mean, people lose friendships, lose friendships over over over, over patents. You know, it breaks breaks up breaks up business relationships all the time. So in closing here, I want to give you both a chance uh, to firstly uh, tell my listeners how they can view painkiller and uh what you guys are working on next i know mark you you have a film uh pond scum coming up which i'm very much looking forward to uh but also in addition to promoting all of that uh what do you hope that people who may pick up the film after listening to this episode what do you want them to get out of it uh do you want to go first bill and then mark i'm looking forward to pond scum too anything mark does i'm looking forward to um, if people want to find me, it's easy. I'm Bill Bush Jr. everywhere. I answer my mail eventually. It might take a long time. <laughs> I answer Twitter pretty quickly. Um, uh, what would I like people, if they were to watch this film, to take away from it? Just as Benjamin Franklin said, I'm a big history buff, let us doubt a bit of our own infallibility. 
whatever our views are on the issue, we're quite sure that we're absolutely right. I think Mark and Tom did a good job in Painkiller of exploring the different points of view. Um, I mean, my character is a killer. You know, he's a hero, but also he's murdering people who are only peripherally involved in the event that he's upset about. Yeah, so, and I was I was just going to add to that too. One thing, even during some of those kills, and I don't know if this was intentional um, from your side, Mark, and also uh, from Tom Parnell's side, but you know, there's points where you know you're, you're sort of getting that catharsis of saying, "Yeah, the the bad guys are getting it," but then you also have these characters saying, "Well, I have a family and kids too," and it sort of hits you for a second there. You're like, "Oh, this." Maybe yes. this is more messed up than I think. Um, yes. So, and 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 I love that about the film. And so that's what I would like people to take away with them is uh, to be a little unsettled in the certainty of their convictions and just to think. That's to me what a great movie does. It's just, it makes me think, I'm not quite sure what I just saw or how I feel about what I just saw. Boy, those are the movies that I remember much more than the ones that I walk out saying, well, it was great. And then a week later, I can't remember much about it. I like the ones that made me think, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. And I would love if people would watch Painkiller and have that emotion afterwards. And, and thanks for having us. If we're, if we're wrapping up, um, and this is my last segment, thank you for what you do and for taking independent film seriously. I, I, and I just wanted to add, uh, if you could, uh, can you tell my listeners about your latest project the spiritual value of horror oh yeah um it's a documentary and uh, the um creators of it wanted to explore whether or not uh, beyond the plots of horror films there might be some uh, spiritual aspects or messages and they asked me to narrate it and wrote a script and i narrated it and uh, it's very interesting they had clips from over 100 horror movies there and then, Mark, uh, for you, uh, upcoming projects and also uh, what do you hope that uh, my listeners get out of the film when they pick it up and watch it? I hope that people get, I mean, obviously, you know, obviously you want people to be engaged. I hope people would like, you know, at least um, develop an, an awareness and maybe a little bit of, um, you know, irritation, if not anger, at what's going on. So they'll think about that, you know, next time they... Next time they, you know, they they vote for someone, you know, read, you know, read what they represent. And, you know, I think just to take a close, you know, a closer look at the way that that power moves, that power moves around them, because it's it's the exercising of power which enables it to happen. But it's also the exercising of more like a citizen power that can that can stop things, you know, and there is a way to take care of it. Um, as far as the idea that, yeah, like he's killing people, and yeah, some of these people have families. That's a, that's again communicating that gray area that nothing is as simple as it seems. It's it's an unresolved issue, and when it's an unresolved issue, I think it's something that yeah that it needs to be addressed in a different way because clearly the way it's being addressed right now isn't working. A hundred thousand people died in the last year from from this, and that's in addition to people who died um, you know from COVID. Um, with films, yeah, Pond Scum's an older film and I've been working on it for a long time. It's been a bit of a, trouble, a troubled film for various reasons I can't really go into. But, um, yeah, that, that'll be coming out later in 22. But I just have done two other films in the last six months, um, a film called um, Bring Him Back Dead, shot in New York with um, Dan Daniel Baldwin, Louis Mandalore and um, Gary Daniels. 
And I just finished another one in Vegas too, just these past couple of weeks called Hell's Coming For You, which is, I guess you could call it the, um, the first film about a disabled action hero starring a real disabled hero. So that's the um, latest one with Tim Chisma and the previous one I did it with, with producer um, Jeff Miller. So they're the two. And then, yeah, lots coming up next year too. So really appreciate the show and really appreciate your um, support of, of, of the work. Um, thanks for having me on the show. And thank you, Bill and Mark, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with director Mark Savage and actor Bill Oberst Jr. Please be sure to check out their new film, Painkiller. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got a $1 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier, $15 tier, and even a $100 tier, and at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout, which leads us to the producer's credit shoutouts for this episode. Producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 or $15 tiers of my Patreon page at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Also, at the $5 tier and above, you'll receive exclusive bonus content. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's your support that keeps this show going. And with all that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that. Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.